what do you do when the hero doesn't deliver? What do you do when the hero doesn't deliver? John Wayne walks into the saloon, points at the coward in the corner, and draws a squirt gun. Babe Ruth steps up to the plate like two outs, bottom of the ninth, then looks at the pitcher and pulls out his red plastic wiffle bat. Hmm. Or Paul McCartney sits down to the piano, cracks his knuckles, and plays chopsticks. Because that's how it had to feel on Palm Sunday, 2,000 years ago. More on that later. It's 33 AD, and God's people have been living under the boots of Roman oppression for 100 years, and they're tired of it. Roman soldiers marching through their holy city, Jerusalem, their dust mingling with the incense from the temple, having to pay these absorbent taxes to Caesar so he can expand his empire. The people are reluctant, but they have no choice because Caesar's on the throne and Rome is unconquerable. It's 33 AD. Jesus has been teaching for three years. He's turned water to wine. He's walked on the Sea of Galilee. He's healed the sick. He's cleansed the lepers. He's spoken, taught to thousands of people. But there's this nagging feeling kind of hovering around like when is he actually going to get around to doing what he came to do because this carpenter's son is getting harder and harder to follow do you ever feel like that like God's dragging his heels on a promise for you like He was going to deliver you from something, but then it just didn't quite happen. And so you're going, God, what's up? You heard that Jesus came to ease and to lighten. But you hear that and you go, yeah, well, not in my life. And so it sort of becomes this quaint sentimentality like, okay, well, whatever. There's hype every once in a while, but the hype doesn't last. What do you do when the hero doesn't? deliver. And if you feel like that, you're in great company. It's 33 AD. It's been 400 years plus since God's people have heard anything from him. 400 plus years since he last spoke through the prophet Malachi. It's been 400 very long years. And that brings us to Matthew 21. So if you've got a copy of God's word, turn there, Matthew 21. Uh, If you want to follow along on the screens, that's fine too. Matthew chapter 21. So this morning, as we prepare our hearts for Easter week, we find ourselves on Palm Sunday. And I think Palm Sunday is the most misunderstood holiday on our Christian calendar, right? How many of you have ever seen this or maybe done this in a church where you come into church and there's like palm branches that like kids lay down? I did that, you know? And you're like, why are we doing this? This is the weirdest thing in the world. Palm branches, why? How much did you pay for those? Can you get them on Amazon Prime? Like, how did you get palm branches in your church? Why are we doing this? I think it's worth to stop at Palm Sunday just to re-examine this very familiar story. And I think it's made up of three scenes. Three scenes that when we unpack them and build them back together, paint a picture of discipleship that is often overlooked, but nonetheless very, very compelling. Scene one, 
first one. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, they came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you'll find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you should say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, and now Jesus reaches way back into the Old Testament, and he brings out a voice from one of the prophets, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, and on a coal to the foal of a beast of burden. So we're going to stop there, end of scene one. That's a little weird. Like, why would he do this? Like, donkey? What's going on here? So he sends these two disciples. We don't know exactly who they are in this text. He sends them about two miles down the road, which is roughly the distance from where we are right now to the Dunkin' Donuts on Pittsburgh. Don't ask me how I know that. It's like a 15-minute walk, right? Not very far. He just sends them ahead, and he says, I want you to go find a donkey for me. Like, super strange. It's just my imagination, but could you imagine the conversation along the way? Like, Jesus, like a donkey? Like, no, 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 no. You meant war horse. Come on, right? And like humble, you meant conquering and confident, right, Jesus? Like, it must be a misprint. He got that wrong. But okay, whatever, donkey, we'll make it happen. Okay. And if you think about it, it is a really silly image, right? It'd be like LeBron riding into Cleveland on a tricycle. Like, this is not what we expected, Jesus. Why? What is this whole thing? And you would be right, because if you look across the entire Old Testament, if you widened out and you looked over all of ancient Near Eastern history, there is no record of any king riding anywhere into any town on a donkey. It's like Jesus goes out of his way to look ridiculous. Because he's reaching back and he's saying, do you remember that king that Zechariah talked about like centuries ago? Do you remember that king? I'm that king. And the disciples are like, okay, whatever, we'll just go, we'll go do it. Okay, Jesus, you're in charge. What do you do, though, when the hero doesn't deliver? And slowly the tension begins to build. Scene changes, shift the focus. Verse 6 The disciples went and did as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey and and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that shouted, or that followed him, were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Those are Interesting scene. Two things. First, cloaks. What's that about? Right? I might be tempted to think like this is like that gentlemanly chivalrous gesture of like putting your coat over a puddle. And it's kind of like that, but it's more like a red carpet for somebody special. Like this guy that's coming is a big deal. And then there's these palm branches, right? So what is with the palm branches? This is a little bit more specific. The image of a palm branch or a palm tree was really dear to the Jewish people. It was an image that kind of embodied all the hopes and dreams and and wishes and all these aspirations that God's people hoped that this one day Messiah King would bring with him. It's very central 
to God's people. So much so that the Romans, when they took over Jerusalem, they used this image to make a point. Here's how they did it. They made coins. We got a picture of them. And these coins went out everywhere. These were like these little state quarters that you find in the change tray of your car or at the bottom of your purse or in your wallet or in your pocket. They were everywhere. And they got your national identity out there. And so on the front, you got this, like, this portrait of Emperor Vespasian with this, like, this like, tough Roman bad boy looking face, right? And then on the back, you have three things. On this side, the far right, you've got a picture of a woman weeping that symbolizes Jerusalem. On this side, you've got a picture of a Roman soldier with his sword standing over her. And in the middle, what do you have? Palm tree. And so as these coins got out in the empire, it was like the Romans reminding the Jewish people, like, "Mm -mm, your future is ours. Your throne is ours. Your land is ours. You are not God's people. You are our people. And so that Latin phrase around the top says, Iodia Capta means Judea conquered. It would be like if an invading army came into the United States, started printing new currency, and on the back they had a picture of a harpooned eagle. Like defeat, oppressive, offensive. This palm branch was a really big deal. And so in Matthew, when we see these people laying palm branches down, what they're saying is, here's our king. Here's who he is. Look at him, he's coming. It's this big, loud, like riotous affair. you know they feel that way because of what they say they say four things we're going to hit them super quick first they say hosanna right which sounds like a woman's name it doesn't sound like something you'd say to a king right like what does that mean first hosanna it means like kind of like our version of or their version of hail to the chief it was like look at this this is a sign of respect it had a dual meaning literally it means save like with an exclamation point on the bottom of it save please save very complex word. It was like you were getting down on your knees going like, please do something. Please act. I know that you can. While at the same time standing up and saluting. We don't really have a word for that in the English language. But it was a recognition of this person can do what needs to be done. And we know what needs done. Liberation from Rome. Let's go. It's the first thing they say. Second thing they say is, Hosanna to the son of David. Now, you can't miss this. This is not an ordinary welcome. Son of David wasn't just something you throw around. To call someone a son of David meant that this leader was consistent with the confidence, embodied the courage, and inspired the hope that King David used to. And if you know your biblical history, King David's days were the glory days. Like expansion, leadership, everybody loved us, worship's going great, and like integrity, like most of the time with David. (laughs) These are the good days, and this guy's gonna be just like David was. It's gonna be incredible. And then they kind of kick it up a notch further, and they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Like, whoa, you just brought God into this whole thing. Like, not just is this a good leader and like, hey, we're we're excited about this dude, but like, no, you brought God into this and now this person is God's personal agent to execute what God has always wanted done. 
That's lifted right from Psalm 118. That phrase, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then the last one is Hosanna in the highest. It's like they took that first phrase, Hosanna, and injected it with the highest possible momentum and emotion that you could think of. Like, we've never leaned in like this before. We've never had a king like this before. This is gonna be awesome. Just you wait, Roman soldier. taken together these four phrases they build like a giant crescendo like more and more like tapping into this messianic fervor till it almost becomes like a frenzy look at him he's here he's coming but what do you do when the hero doesn't deliver and slowly slowly the tension continues to build scene three verse ten And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. That phrase stirred up is really, really a good one. It's only used five times in the New Testament. Almost every other time, it means a literal earthquake. So you got this crowd that's like a literal earthquake. They're all stood up. They're saying, who is this guy? And they say, it's Jesus from Nazareth, from Galilee. It's like, that's our local boy made good. Who would have thought it'd be him? Like, look at him. Here he is. But over this whole crowd, this whole parade, this whole scene, this whole narrative, hangs a dark cloud, heavy with irony. Because All of those voices that are right now saying, yes, Jesus, come. Inside of four days, they're gonna say, crucify him. Drive a spike through his wrists. Make him bleed. Because this Messiah who is supposed to deliver us has been betrayed by a coward, arrested in a garden, bound in chains, accused of blasphemy, and locked in a Roman jail cell. Some deliverer. And if we're going to be faithful to this text, we've got to ask ourselves the questions what happened? What went so wrong? How did all those helium-filled hopes just like fall? What do you do when the hero doesn't deliver? And slowly, 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 the tension continues to build all through Easter week. So here's what I'm worried about. I'm worried that we live in a perpetual Palm Sunday. I'm worried that many people I've grown comfortable with this idea of Jesus as a teacher who comes with really compelling morality, but not as a Lord and Savior with sovereign authority. And there is a difference. One of the most dangerous things that you can do is to ascribe things to Jesus that he never intended to be. Because that's what's happening in this text. And we do it all the time. 
we lay down our palm branches because we're so excited about this version of Jesus who's gonna do this for me, gonna make my kids behave, gonna make my marriage better, gonna pad my bank account, easy yoke, light burden, make the sickness go away and fix whatever I am fixated on. And if this text teaches us anything, it's that you can't separate Jesus' person from his purpose. You can't separate who he is from what he came to do. Palm Sunday Christianity is not sufficient. And so if we're gonna take King Jesus seriously, I think there's four things in our lives that we need to consider, okay? Here we go. First one, you ought to consider your need, Consider your need. There's about three or 400 people in this room, like give or take, and if I asked you a question, I'd be really interested in hearing your response. Here's my question. What is God? What is God? Some of you, you might go to an adjective, like, well, he's holy, or he's, he's high, he's free, he's sovereign, he's wise. Some of you, you might go to like a confession or a creed that maybe you learned to recite as a kid, and that's really good, Right? We'd all get some very interesting opinions that would come out of that conversation. Well, I'm going to give you my clearest definition of God. All right, this is me, Theology 101. Here you go. God is that which I trust to completely deliver me from my deepest need. I'll say that again. God is that which I trust to completely deliver me from my deepest need. So it starts with my needs, right? Everybody in this room have needs, right? Anybody not have needs, right? Mm-hmm, right? Nobody's completely satisfied with your life. So you're looking around, you're going, well, I need this, I need this, I need this. And so the only question is, out of all of those needs, what is your deepest need? What's underneath all of them? Here's how this works. What you define as your deepest need ultimately defines what you worship, what you orient your life around. It's just how it works. Example, so I met somebody recently. Um, She's not at North Canton Chapel, just so we're clear. And she's completely obsessed with her financial picture. Like, can't stop talking about it. And so, how's it going? Like, well, we really want to get our kids in this private school, but we don't have enough money to get them there, okay? We really want to get out of our house, but we're so upside down, like we just can't do it. Or we really want to have this, but we really can't because we don't have enough money. And so she's completely reoriented her life around this idea of my deepest need is financial stability. Now, like is financial stability a bad thing? No, right? Money is a a gift and God could use this to do amazing things for the kingdom, right? Financial stability is not a bad thing. It's just a really lousy God. And so what becomes her God? anything that will completely deliver her from this. So it's a new job, right? It's a winning lotto ticket or just the emotional freedom that comes with unloading on people. We can put anything in this box up here to completely deliver us from this. So we've got to understand what this is. What is our deepest need? And so we turn to the pages of scripture. We ask ourselves, What does the God of the Bible say that my deepest need is? Because what I think my need is ultimately connects with what I worship. Here's the thing. You and I are more 
like this crowd than we are unlike them. It's possible that we may have joined them in a subtle idolatry. This crowd wanted a version of Jesus that's going to come in, free them from Roman soldiers. We want a version of Jesus that's primarily oriented around what I want. And you may love that vision of Jesus. The only problem is that's not in Jesus of Scripture. And so if you believe that God is whatever you completely, or trust to completely deliver you from your deepest need, what does God say your deepest need is? I have fallen under the conviction that my deepest need is the restoration of my relationship with my heavenly father. And so every other need I have falls under that. I've got a sin problem because I messed up my life. And so I need someone to fix that so that this restoration can happen. And in my hope and my search for a deliverer, I could fill it with a thousand things, guys. Like I could fill it with maybe if like I'm I'm good enough, like 49% bad, 51% good, and then boom, like I'm okay when I die because God's got to let me in, right? That doesn't work, I could fill it with religious traditions. Like if I just go to confession enough and say the right stuff, then maybe God's going to have to honor me. Or, Or I could fill it with this like vague morality, like I'm just trying to be a good person. The only problem is I can't be my own deliverer. And neither can you. And so for me, all of my trust falls on Jesus, this carpenter's son from Nazareth who was God in the flesh because he can completely deliver me from my deepest needs. So what's yours? Answer, reconciliation. That is your deepest need. Everything else falls under that. And so we need to consider, if we're gonna get right with King Jesus, what does he say my deepest need is? Second thing we need to consider. We need to consider our expectations. We need to consider our expectations. Here's another way that we are like this crowd. We are spiritually nearsighted. For most of us in our lives, we can't see any further than right here. And there's anything you need to know about God is God delights in blowing up short-sighted expectations. It's what he does. Here's where you see this in the text. You want a king? Awesome. I'm going to give you a savior. You want a conquering general? I'm going to give you a victory like you've never dreamed about. You want freedom? I'm going to break chains you didn't even know you had. And this isn't just a New Testament thing. This is God's character. It's consistent with him. If you look in the Old Testament, you got David, five stones, right? That's all I got. And God's like, fine, let's go deliver my people anyway. Right, Moses, I can't speak good. What do I do? I I don't know what I do. And God says, fine, I don't care. We're gonna redeem my people anyway. Sarah says, I can't have kids. And God says, fine, I'm going to make you the mother of an entire nation. And then when you get to 2 Corinthians, the apostle Paul takes a look at that and he draws a conclusion about God's character and he says, God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And what is more foolish than a king who rides on a donkey and is nailed to a cross? This is what God does. He blows up our short-sighted expectations all over the place. Practically speaking, here's what we should take from this. When it comes to God's provision in our lives, we should not think ourselves very wise at all. We should realize that God's provision is perfect in the manner of his provision, in the scope of his provision, and in the timing of his provision. 
It's really easy, isn't it, to shake your fist at God when he doesn't give you what you want, when you thought you'd get it, and how you thought you'd get it. And so if that's you, if you sit here this morning and you are mildly disappointed with God, but you're afraid to say it, here's my point. God has not forgotten about you. You are precious to him. You have not slipped off his radar. You are not on his back burner. If you are here and you are a Christian, you are his adopted child, and God does not forget about his children. He is working something in you to work something through you. And so we ought to consider our expectations. Third thing we need to consider. Consider my perspective. Consider my perspective. So here's where this is in this text. They're so focused on what's right here, on what they want, that they forget why they want it. So I'm going to get a little more personal, a little more vulnerable this morning just for a bit. Um, I want to talk about how this whole transition thing is hitting me. And um, Ryan's in here, so it's okay. So when Ryan told me that um, God was calling them into this new season of, uh, of their ministry, I hope that my face was better than my heart because um, I'm a terrible liar. And... Um, I hope I had a good poker face because my heart was this like very, very conflicted emotion of like profound sadness mixed with like this rage, just to be honest. And I'm like, you stinking jerk. Oh no, you know? And then like it sort of moved a little bit, right? And then it moved into sadness. And then I was like, no, man. And like it was, that was a better feeling. I was happy about that. And it was sad because I love you and I love you like a brother. And I'm not okay with the fact that you're, not going to be like through a very thin drywall <laughs> segment between our offices. And um, I got to this point because we've talked a lot about what God could do with the North Canton Chapel and what he could do in North Canton and what he could do in Stark County and what he could do around the world. And when you have those dreams as a staff, which we do all the time, we talk about that stuff and we pray over that stuff. When you go there with somebody, it's a very deep place. And so I was very sad. And then I got to this place, which is kind of where I'm at right now, just to be clear, and maybe you resonate with this, is I kind of sat there and I'm going, well, this is just bigger than me. And I don't like that. Because I've got my plan. God has his plan, and they don't line up. And I am not okay with that, God. And so if you resonate that, with that at all, here's where my heart is, and here's my word for you. When you lose control of your what, remember your Why? All right, your what? All of this stuff that we have in the day-to-day of our lives, like my routine, my preference, my ideas, my plans, my life, right? My what? All of this stuff that's right here. When I lose control of that, remember your why, okay? Here's the question. Why are we doing this anyway? Why are you at church this morning? You could have slept in. Why are you committed to making disciples here at the North Canton Chapel? You could go anywhere on Sunday morning. Why are you here? What is this about? And hopefully the why, just to speak to that for a bit, you resonate with it because we believe that all the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's why we're here. That's why we're doing what we're doing. And to be really clear, none of that's changing. We don't make disciples because Ryan told us to, although he's been a great model for that and he showed us how to do that. We do it because Jesus told us to. 
And so this why is way bigger. And so when I think about Nebraska and Iowa, and I think about the wealth of wisdom and compassion and love and support, when I think about places that don't have churches and churches that don't have presence and pastors and couples and he trained and mentored and loved, when I get up there, like I go, yes, amen. Like that is a good thing because that's connected to a really big why. I'm still gonna slash your tires though, by the way, just so you know. (laughs) That's what Joe told me. I'm not going to do it. So anyway, when you lose control of your what, remember your why. Last thing we need to consider. Fourth, we need to consider my commitment, my commitment. Author and speaker Kyle Eidelman says it this way. I'm going to give it to you because I don't want to miss it. He says this, most Christians want a faith that is close enough to Jesus to get all the benefits but not so close that it requires any sacrifice. Close enough to get all the benefits, not so close that it gets any, or requires any sacrifice. Like sucker punch to the gut. Thank you for that one. Here's why that's important. Jesus doesn't need fans, right? He needs followers. Jesus doesn't need a big crowd. He wants a deep commitment. He wants not my words, but my heart. Because here's the thing. Fans leave when things get tough. They run. They do in the first century and they do today. Think about this. If you're in this room and you're a Christian, you've made the choice. You've said, yes, I'm gonna follow this Jesus, right? Think about when you first heard the gospel message and maybe you had the same experience that I did, right? The gospel was presented to you benefits first. Think about that. Probably want something like this. Hey, you've messed up, but it's okay. Jesus died and he loves you. And so all you gotta do is say this little prayer and you get to spend forever with him. Isn't grace amazing? And I'm like, that's really convenient for me. This is great. Like, this is Northeast Ohio. Like, everybody's kind of sympathetic to Jesus anyway, right? Like, all I gotta do is kind of believe what everybody else kind of already around me believes anyway. I just gotta keep my nose clean. I just gotta kind of manage my sin to keep it hidden from the wrong people. And like, I'm gonna be okay, keep my nose clean, not have sex before marriage. That's the gospel, right? And we talk about that all the time. Here's how we don't talk about it. Hi, my name is Brandon, and Jesus loves me so much that he followed his heavenly father in obedience on this earth. He was God in the flesh. He gave himself up for me so that I can have my relationship restored with my heavenly father, and I'm gonna take up my cross, I'm gonna deny myself, and I'm gonna follow him in his mission in this life. Do you wanna join me? We don't say it that way. Why? Because it's not how salesmanship is done. Jesus does not need you to sell him to anybody. And if we connect our Christianity or our version of Jesus with this idea of salesmanship, we are missing it right out of the gate. Because someone will say something like this, like, oh, so let me get this straight. You follow this first century Jewish rabbi who wrote this dusty old book and he wants me to pick up my electric chair and like learn from this old book so that I could follow him? Like, no thanks. I'll stick with the part where I don't go to hell. What do I gotta say again? All the while Jesus is going, I want 
followers, not fans. I don't need a bigger crowd. I need deeper hearts. I need a commitment. We pick the parts of Jesus that we like. You know, easy load, light burden, more than sparrows, charming. We reject the parts that we don't like. And we become well-behaved idolaters on Palm Sunday. And so here comes the gospel. He who loses his life for my sake will find it. I really believe that there is nothing more satisfying than a life spent in the service of King Jesus. Or you could take the words of the missionary martyr Jim Elliot who said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he could never lose. So what do you do when the hero doesn't deliver? If you're like most people, you just find a new hero. Or, and this would be the best of all, or you adjust what it means to be delivered. So I hope as we turn our thoughts toward Easter this week that you would consider where you stand with King Jesus because he is a king and he is after you. He is relentless and he will not give up. And he wants your heart. He does not want your palm branches. So we're gonna close in a song here in a little bit. Um, and this song for me, is, it's, it's kind of one of my favorites. Um, it's a newer one, but it kind of falls into this genre of like, Newer songs that sort of sound like a hymn. Um, this thing is loaded with doctrine. And as we sing this, I want you to think, and I want you to sing it out loud. Pay attention to the things that you see Jesus doing in this song. It's called My Living Hope. And so if you're like me and you go, man, I got nothing else but Jesus. I have pinned all my hope for my deepest need on Jesus. Then this song, you're gonna get it and you're gonna go, yeah, I'm there, Right? So engage your mind as you sing this. Don't sing this one passively. Let me pray for us. Father, we love you. We are so very grateful for your son that you sent to this place to redeem people who didn't deserve it and played an active role in his crucifixion. Father, we say that you are good, you are wise, and you are sovereign. And so as we think on our living hope, God, help us to sing from our souls. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.